Last time we ended off by talking about why it's necessary to purify proteins in order to study them, and in general, what characteristics of proteins we might use in order to effect separation that constitutes purification. So today we're going to talk about some specific methodologies. Here's one sometimes useful method called ultra-centrifugation. Ultra means, in this case, greater than about 20,000 RPM. Something like 60,000 RPM is common. Compare this to a Ferrari revving out at 6,000 RPM, redlining. This is 10 times faster. You need a vacuum chamber so that no heat from air friction will be produced at these very high speeds. A mixture of molecules put into an ultracentrifuge and centrifuged will be subjected to two main forces as the centrifuge starts to spin. We're going to ignore here the buoyant force of the displaced solution on the molecules. Causing sedimentation is the centrifugal force, which is equal to the mass times the rotational velocity squared times the radius, m omega squared r. So this sedimentational force is proportional to the mass or the molecular weight of a protein. m here equals mass, omega, the angular velocity, and r, the distance from the center of rotation. Now opposing this sedimentation force is friction which can be described as equal to F naught V, where F naught is a frictional coefficient. It's a constant for any particular protein. It's minimum for a sphere and higher for less compact shapes like cigars or pancakes. And V is the velocity of the molecule as it moves away from the center of rotation. Soon after accelerating, V increases to a point where no further acceleration takes place as the forces on the molecule are balanced. It continues to sediment, but at a constant velocity. Now at this point, at this velocity, centrifugal force, sedimenting it, is equal to the frictional force that's acting opposed to the motion. So there's no net force on the molecule, and therefore no acceleration, but there is a constant velocity as the protein molecule moves down the tube. At this point, soon achieved, m omega square r, the sedimentation forces, are equal to F naught v, the frictional forces. So rearranging those terms, we can have v, the velocity, is equal to m omega squared r divided by F or F naught, where F naught is a frictional coefficient, as I said, dependent on shape. To visualize the effect of shape on friction, compare for a minute the velocity of a falling feather versus a tiny pebble of equal weight dropped in air, which is a fluid. So the feather will float down more slowly because of the friction of all the molecules of gas in air against its big surface. The higher F, the more friction. So frictional coefficient is related to, is proportional to the uh, frictional force. If we assume a spherical shape, 
which is true for most, but by no means all proteins. Then we can estimate a molecular weight. We assume F0, then measure V and R, so we can solve for M, or the molecular weight. On the other hand, if we know the molecular weight from some other sources, we can get information about the shape via solving for F0. Sedimentation velocity is often measured in Svedbergs, which takes the centrifugation conditions into account. S, or the Svedberg constant, is equal to V over omega squared R. And so, using the Svedberg constant, we have M equals S times F0. So ultracentrifugation separates proteins on the basis of molecular weight and shape. It's a gentle procedure, non-denaturing, can be carried out at a nice low temperature, say 4 degrees centigrade, which tends to stabilize proteins, and in the presence of a buffer at pH 7 and at physiological levels of salts. You can recover your protein by punching a hole in the bottom of the centrifuge tube after, centrif after centrifuging for many hours, and collecting the solution in a series of tubes as it drips out of the bottom. Each tube can then be examined or assayed for the presence of the protein to be purified. For this purpose, you need to be able to detect the protein in the midst of other proteins if you have a, a mixture. For example, if you were purifying Anvinson's ribonuclease, you could measure the ability of the tube contents to catalyze the breakdown of RNA into its monomers. How about separation on the basis of net charge of a protein? We separated amino acids on the basis of charge in paper electrophoresis. For proteins, the solid supporting material is a gel, not paper. In gel electrophoresis, <coughs> there are two types we're going to consider. First, native gel electrophoresis. Acrylamid is a reactive chemical uh, a monomer in this chemistry as we talk about it. In aqueous solution, it can be made to polymerize into polyacrylamide, thus polyacrylamide gel electrophoresis, or PAGE. The result is a network of polymer fibers which form a gel with about the consistency of jello. This is usually carried out in an apparatus in which this gel stands vertically supported in a sandwich between two glass plates. The top of the gel is connected by a salt solution to an electrode, as is the bottom edge of the gel. A protein mixture is applied to the top of the gel slab. The electrophoresis is started by applying a voltage, say 200 volts, across the gel. The rate of migration of a protein in the gel depends on two properties. The first is net charge. Molecules with the most charge, of a sign opposite to that of the far electrode, will migrate to the far electrode the fastest. Second is its size, which is proportional to the molecular weight if spherical. The gel consists of a network of fibers. Depending on the concentration of the polyacrylamid, the network can be dense or tight, so that the proteins have trouble migrating, as they must negotiate their way through the tangled fibers. Molecules that are smallest, that is, lowest molecular weight, will worm their way through the gel fibers the fastest. So, the smallest and the most highly charged protein wins the race. 
After the electrophoresis has been stopped, molecules will be distributed along the gel length according to these two characteristics, molecular weight and net charge. For instance, a highly charged protein molecule, although pulled with a greater electromotive force, will not have gotten very far if it's relatively large. Note that molecules with a charge opposite to the near electrode will migrate up and off the gel into the buffer reservoir and be lost. Trial and error will dictate how you set up the electrophoresis if you don't know the charge in the protein you're trying to isolate. Sometimes the gel is made purposely loose so that the effective pore size is very large and then charge alone determines mobility. Starch gels rather than polyacrylamide gels have been used to create large pore gels in the past. If we look at this diagram then, for the results of a native gel electrophoresis, we're looking here at all positively charged proteins, for one thing, since the negative um, electrode or cathode is placed at the bottom of the gel in this application. At the bottom, that is, the molecules that won the race relative to their um, competitors here, the green triangles, these are the small and high with a high positive charge. They have everything going for them. At the other extreme, the large purple circles are large and have a low positive charge. So they don't tend to migrate very fast um, because they're not pulled very hard and they also have trouble getting through. In the middle, we can see two possible situations. Some molecules that are large but have a high positive charge or molecules that are small but don't have much. They have a low positive charge. And these might end up migrating at about the same rate. A second, more widely used variation of gel electrophoresis is SDS page, or SDS polyacrylamide gel electrophoresis. Here, sodium dodecyl sulfate, or SDS, sometimes called SLS for sodium lauryl sulfate, is included in the gel. Here's the formula for SDS. CH3, CH2, 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 11 times, followed by SO4 minus minus. Sulfate at the end of this molecule is similar in structure to phosphate. It's a strong acid. You've all heard of sulfuric acid. Like a phospholipid, SDS is, has a highly polar end, where the sulfate is, and a highly hydrophobic body, all those CH2s. Might you expect SDS to denature a protein? Yes. It's a detergent and a powerful denaturant. It binds all over the protein, coating every protein with a nearly uniform negative charge. SDS is put into the gel when you form it and into the electrophoresis buffer. Now, when SDS page is run, where should the anode be placed? Does it matter? Yes, the protein is coated with negative charge now, so the anode is always the far electrode put at the bottom. Under these denaturing conditions, the polypeptides exist as random coils, which then migrate solely on the basis of their size, which is the equivalent of a sphere for all polypeptides. Larger molecules have more difficulty finding their way through the polyacrylamide fibers. So the lowest molecular weight wins, and always wins, in SDS page. 
If you run standards of known molecular weight, you can determine the molecular weight of your protein by comparison. And this is a very common way to assign a molecular weight to a polypeptide. However, it's not always completely accurate, as some proteins probably do bind a bit more SDS than others. And one must remember to reduce the disulfides with mercaptoethanol first, usually, so as to have a truly random coil for comparison with other proteins. If you don't yet know what a protein does, you can just call it by its molecular weight from SDS gels. For example, P53, a famous protein whose absence is associated with cancer, was named in this way, and the name has stuck, even though quite a lot is known about its function now. P in P53 stands for protein, so you have names like P27, P100, etc., where the numbers indicate the molecular weight, most often determined from these SDS gels. If you have a protein with quaternary structure, SDS page will give you the molecular weight of the polypeptide subunits, since the SDS will denature the protein and so dissociate it into its subunits. If you want to know the molecular weight of a protein in its native quaternary structure, you need a method that separates proteins under mild conditions that maintain its native structure. For this, we could use molecular sieve chromatography, also called Cephidex chromatography chromatography or gel filtration. These are all synonymous. You start with plastic-like beads in a glass column with a support screen on the bottom. You add your protein mixture to the top of the column material and then begin elution by adding a large volume of a buffer. The beads have been manufactured to be riddled with channels of a, spe of a specified fairly uniform size. If a protein is smaller then the channel size. As it passes by the beads, collides with beads, it will enter a channel, explore it channel by diffusion, and eventually make its way back out, having wasted its time in the race to the bottom of the column. Larger proteins can't fit into the channels, so they don't waste their time, and they win the race. Intermediate-sized proteins have a bit of trouble getting into a channel, so they waste some time, but less than the smaller proteins. So larger proteins come out, or elute, first, and the smallest come out last. Here again, you would collect the eluted proteins in a series of tubes, and then assay each tube for the presence of the protein being purified. If you calibrate the column by noting the behavior of spherical proteins of known size, you can determine the molecular weight of your protein by comparison, if it is also spherical. If it's not spherical, it will appear to have a higher molecular weight than its true molecular weight. Imagine a, a pancake being excluded from a channel while a sphere of the same, same molecular weight gets in. Other methods of protein purification include ion exchange chromatography, which also takes advantage of the net charge on a protein, and affinity chromatography, which takes advantage of the surface properties of a protein, which we'll discuss next. One can purify a particular protein away from all other proteins in four or five such steps. For more on these protein separation techniques, see the protein separation handout. One has to be able to follow the protein of interest to detect its presence in the presence of all others.
one often uses the functional properties <coughs> of the protein for this, which brings us back to structure and function of proteins. As an introduction into an example of the function of proteins, let's consider first a special class of proteins that do not follow some of the rules we have seen that govern protein structure in general. These are the membrane proteins, the proteins that reside not in the aqueous environment of the cytoplasm or the nucleus, but rather in the hydrophobic environment of the membranes of the cell, including the cell membrane. In these proteins, the hydrophobic side chains are on the outside, as there are no hydrophobic forces present to force them to coalesce. These proteins can usually diffuse laterally in the lipid bilayer of the membrane. They can aggregate with each other with specificity, and they can become anchored via attachment to structural cytoplasmic fibers. They can be nearly completely enveloped by the lipid bilayer, or they could be partially immersed with a more conventional half, that is, hydrophobics on the inside of the membrane, hydrophilics on the outside, hydrophobics on the inside of the protein, hydrophilics on the outside, sticking out into the cytoplasm or on the outside of the cell, so partially in the membrane and partially out. One class of membrane proteins act as channels through the membrane. The channel proteins are formed into cylinders with a hydrophobic exterior, but with hydrophilic groups lining the hole through the interior of the cylinder. Small molecules can pass through the cylinder, or channel, but larger molecules cannot fit through. Note, macromolecules cannot diffuse into cells. We're talking here about small molecules. So we have a cellular function for a protein and a function that shows some selectivity on the basis of size there. How about other criteria of selectivity, like charge? Some channels can distinguish charge. Plus repels plus and attracts minus. So a channel that is lined with positive charge could bind a negatively charged ion and if there's a higher concentration outside than inside, eventually pass these ions along from the outside of the cell to the inside. A positively charged ion, on the other hand, would be repelled by the channel and so would not get into the cell by this route. So here's selectivity based on charge as well as size. You could imagine the same sort of selectivity based on hydrogen bonding, for example. So a protein can detect charge and surface electrical properties. How about shape? Consider a pocket on the surface of a folded protein. Now talking back again about soluble proteins. As I've drawn this surface pocket in the diagram below, the free amino acid glycine can fit in and bind using electrical attraction or ionic bonds. You see here the amino group binding to a negatively charged amino acid on this yellow surface of the protein, and the negatively charged carboxyl group interacting with a positively charged amino acid placed on this surface in just the right place in this hypothetical protein. However, the closely related amino acid, alanine, with a methyl group as a side chain, cannot fit into this hypothetical protein A, as drawn here in yellow, as you see in the second diagram. Since 
the methyl group is preventing, it's getting in the way of the charge groups on the amino acid from getting close enough to have a strong interaction with the surface charge in the protein. As glycine binds to protein A, the forces that are holding it together include the ionic bonds and the van der Waals bonds, which are responsible for the binding in this example. So in this deep part of the pocket, we would have van der Waals uh, bonds contributing as well. A similar pocket on the surface of another protein, say the gray protein B above, could be built to accommodate the methyl or CH3 group of alanine and supply some more van der Waals bonds there in the process. So if we had a different protein that was uh, shaped with a deeper pocket here, it could accommodate alanine. So protein A binds glycine but not alanine, and protein B binds alanine and glycine not so strongly because it, it can't form as many van der Waals bonds. So you can get specific binding, and this binding is critically dependent on the structure of the protein, the shape of the binding site. This binding is also a critical part of the function of the protein, as we'll soon see. Specific binding at a protein surface is not restricted to interactions between a macromolecule and a small molecule, shown here. There's also specificity in the interactions between two macromolecules, as exemplified many times by quaternary structure. The complementary surfaces of the two correct subunits fit together with great specificity. Just the right subunit polypeptides specifically associate to form a multimeric protein. For example, the subunits of immunoglobulin never associate with the subunits of hemoglobin. Now that we've seen that proteins can bind other molecules with great specificity, I should mention one last additional aspect of protein structure that I've put off until now, protein domains. The overall shape of most proteins is roughly globular, but if one looks more closely, one can see that most proteins can be divided into subregions that are folded more or less independently of the rest. These folded up globules are called domains. An interesting feature of many domains is that homologous domains can often be found in many different proteins. Many of the individual amino acids of the primary structure are different, but many others are the same. And the overall shape of the domains in different proteins can be very similar. A recognizable domain in a protein can often be associated with a particular function, often the ability to bind a particular small molecule. In the simple example we used above, a glycine binding domain might be found in several different proteins, each of which needs to bind glycine to carry out its function. Thus, we might also have a glucose binding domain, a phosphate binding domain, or an RNA binding domain in several proteins whose function requires them to bind these molecules. The ability to bind a specific small molecule is exploited by proteins when they carry out one of their main functions, to act as catalysts that bring about chemical transformations of the small molecules they bind. These protein catalysts are called enzymes. Enzymes represent perhaps the single largest category of proteins with respect to function. 
Since they're responsible for virtually all the chemical conversions going on in the cell, it's difficult to overestimate the central role they play in life. Enzymes function as catalysts, so let's define a catalyst. Consider the purely chemical reaction between hydrogen gas and iodine gas. H2 plus I2 goes to 2HI plus energy. This reaction goes spontaneously to the right because H2 and I2 are higher energy compounds than HI or hydrogen iodide. That is, H2 and I2 are less stable than the combination of these four atoms in the form 2HI. In the diagram below, the ordinate, or y-axis, is free energy of the components. Change in free energy, called delta G, is the only thing that can be measured, and free energy here is the energy needed to pull apart the atoms. The highest bond strengths will be lowest on the ordinate, as it will mean more energy has to be put in to raise the atoms to their free, separated state. So. If you can invest the energy to separate the atoms and then let them fall back to HIs, you would get more energy out, 3 kilocalories per mole difference. If you look at the diagram here, you can see that uh, on the right side, H2 plus I2 pulled apart at the top to the individual atoms two hydrogens and two iodines, which then can fall back either to H2 and I2, or going to the right down to 2HI, which would be at a lower level that is more stable. That is, you would have to invest more energy from 2HI, since it's lower here, to get them up to 2H plus 2I than you would from H2 and I2. So you'd get more energy out, 3 kilocalories per mole difference. This is a characteristic of a spontaneous chemical reaction. Spontaneous means the reaction can proceed in the direction indicated, left to right, with the release of energy. In contrast, reactions that do not release energy, but require energy input, are not spontaneous. So spontaneous has a special meaning in energetics. Energy-releasing reactions are called exergonic. Energy-requiring reactions are called endergonic. Despite the fact that this, H2 plus I2 goes to 2HI, is an exergonic reaction, it does not proceed very readily. This failure to react is the case for many such energy-releasing reactions. For example, burning paper, the cellulose plus oxygen reaction. This can release much energy but left to itself in air, paper only slowly browns. And it takes a long time. We can understand this failure to react if you consider that you need to get the atoms apart before you can rearrange them. And it takes a lot of energy to break those covalent bonds. Actually, you do not need to take the atoms completely apart. To get this transformation to proceed, you just need to get to a transition state. If the two molecules, H2 and I2, collide at sufficiently high velocity, then all four of the atoms involved in the collision can temporarily form bonds to each other 
And this complex then has a chance to resolve itself into 2HI or back into H2 plus I2, as indicated in the diagram below. So for the reaction to proceed, you only need to produce a transition state and not the complete separation of the atoms. And the energy needed to get to a transition state is called the activation energy. So there's lots of new terms here. Catalysts act by reducing the activation energy. Without a catalyst, you need a forceful collision to get to the transition state. Very few molecules can muster it. But for our reaction here, if we add a third substance, if we add some powdered platinum, the reaction proceeds almost instantly. The platinum can bind both reactants so that many of the hydrogen and iodine gas molecules find themselves as neighbors on the surface of the platinum. More like bedfellows, as they can be closely packed, so closely that they can form a transition state right there on the surface of the platinum particle, as you can see here on the right of the diagram below. The platinum makes it easier to get to a transition state. No forceful collision is required. The two participants, or reactants, just bind close together on the common binding surface. And binding to the platinum also weakens the HH bond and the II bond, making it easier now to form the HI bond. The catalyst is not altered. It just speeds up the reaction. The catalyst does not change the situation with respect to the spontaneity of the reaction, that is, the energy-releasing character, or directionality, refer back to that energy diagram. Nothing's changed there in terms of the, the relative levels of H2 plus I2 versus 2HI. It just speeds things up. Chemical catalysts, such as platinum, can speed things up 10,000-fold. So they're very important in the chemical industry. If you look back on the energy diagram, you can see the on the right side, the transition state is at a lower energy level than the separation of the atoms completely. And the energy needed to reach the transition state, you see this activation energy, is what's lowered when you add the platinum to the reaction, and which is not shown on this diagram. Next time, we'll see how enzymes function in a way analogous to this platinum, and yet uh, in a more sophisticated way than this platinum, uh, when we discuss the function of enzymes.